Welcome to Crawl Space. Here we are in the Crawl Space Studios talking about the murder of Dr. Dean. And last Saturday, we went to go see this writer, Jack Cooey. Yeah, no, no other place I'd rather be right now than Wormtown, Massachusetts, uh, nestled, nestled in this building, um, talking about uh, a murder that happened in 1918. Jack Cooey is a local expert. He resides in the Monadnock region and has lived there for, I would say, the majority of his life. He um, He's a writer, uh, short stories, uh, I'd say novellas, but he has had the Dean murder on his mind for the better part of 25, 25 27 years. He's got a fever, Lance, and the only cure is uh, writing more Dean books. Um, so he's written four books now on this story that we're talking about here, the the murder of Dr. Dean from 1918. Right. His first book was Two-Legged Foxes. Which I loved. Which is a really good read. All of his books are really good reads. Yeah. Uh, and then he had August 13th, and then he wrote... Um, Lights from Monadnock. Lights from Monadnock. He's currently working on a new one. I believe that the working title is The Murder of Dr. Dean. Yeah, I think The Death, maybe, of Dr. Dean. The Death of Dr. Dean. It's it's in the works. He he goes on in this interview later on to um, say that it's uh, hopefully the definitive version that he's written. Um, But something tells me if he has some more ideas or something else percolates after this one is published, the next definitive edition will be released. Yeah, well, he he did say, you know, and he's a writer, and so he gets the process. But he did say that every time he wrote a book about this, he was hoping that that was the definitive uh, version. So this next version, um, you know, this new book that he's writing, I think it's called The Death of Dr. Dean, is due out in January. So uh, we'll let you know when that's available. Um, but his all of his books are available on Amazon, and they're pretty reasonably priced. And uh, I'm reading Lights from Monadnock now, and I think it's very good. So yeah, and and Lance, so you have a history with this guy, and we're going to play some some clips from uh, from our meeting. Actually, it was like a two hour and twenty minute interview with Jack uh, up in Keene. Um, so we're going to play some clips from that, and uh, and you have a history with this guy that you're going to talk about in this first clip. We don't specifically say how we met. Uh, the how we met was um, I had I'd written some really horrible um, articles for the high school newspaper. I planned on a whole series about the Dean murder, um, but that didn't quite work out. Uh, I believe graduation was coming. I uh, probably a lot of my projects senior year high school didn't really work out. A little too ambitious little, for your own good. A little too lazy. <laughs> okay. A little, little too lazy. Yeah. Um, so he had, he I can't remember how he ended up reading these articles, but he visited me um, at my workplace. I want to say I was like a dishwasher, and I think he um, I think he visited me there and said that he read the articles and if I wanted to swing by his studio, uh, he was writing a book on it and he was writing Two Legged Foxes at the time, and his studio was a, a like a loft attic in um in a place called the Woodbound Inn. So Woodbound Inn is um. It's a uh, the restaurant, a little staple of the. I of feel the, like I can picture it just yeah. from the name. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> exactly. And I did see the picture in his uh, house of him uh, in in his attic, uh, 
studio there doing his writing we we ended up talking for uh for the for the morning he was telling me about his writing process and he was talking about the dean murder and what we end up discussing here at the beginning of this interview is um it was a a really short film myself and some high school uh colleagues put together um kind of describing the circumstances surrounding Dr. Dean's death. And we shot it on, I believe it was like eight millimeter or 16 millimeter. It was one of my friend's family's old camera. So it had this old grainy look. It was black and white silent. Uh, We put music to it and on the, I believe the, I can't remember which anniversary, but it was an an anniversary of the murder. And we showed it at the uh, civic center in Jaffrey. And that was, all the evidence was laid out in the wow, case. That's powerful. Like the socks, the the oh, rope, my the God. bag. If we could see this now, <laughs> how great would this be? I don't even. I have no idea where it is right now. So, if anyone who was a part of that, and you know who you are, if you're listening, if you were a part of that, <laughs> part of me wants to say, just burn it. <laughs> no, <laughs> don't burn it. it. <laughs> no, email us at crawlspacepodcast at gmail dot com, and uh, only we, if your only if your subject line is I burned that film. <laughs> Okay, so here is the first clip with Jack Cooey. You and I go back a little bit. You, you, uh, you were first introduced to, um, or I was first introduced to you in 1995, mm-hmm. 1996. Yep. And what was the uh, what was the circumstances around that? Well, as I remember, you were working on a project. Mm-hmm. I think you wanted to do a film. Probably. Because I remember you told a funny story about, uh, we were talking about Mrs. Dean being a possible suspect here. Yeah. And you did a rehearsal of your of the film you wanted to do, and you had one of your people pick up somebody and have them carry him up the hill. Yeah. And, and it was a funny story because <laughs> you said, you know, the amount of difficulty you had doing it, there's no way you would you believe that Mrs. Dean did it. Right. But we, it, was, it was a funny story the way you told it. We actually had, I can't remember if it was a... Um, like a, a 16 millimeter camera that we were using and yeah. it was for the Jaffrey Historical Society and it was um, a recreation of all of the uh, more important parts that, that we gathered from the transcript and one of them was uh, to recreate the actual like carrying or dragging <laughs> from um, the stone wall to the cistern and yeah we had had the conversation about whether or not mrs dean could have done it and it was hard enough to have you know young men (laughs) do just to do it and the actor we were carrying i remember was he might have weighed 100 pounds i mean he was he was small um so that that pretty much dispelled that uh (laughs) that theory in my head how did you get started in this when did it first come to your attention oh uh it probably goes back to like 1993 and i had a day off coming up and i mentioned to another employee that um, I was going to hike Mount Monadnock and he said, oh, well, you ought to go up and see the cave where they found the German spies and captured them and bombed down a Jaffe and stuffed them down a well or some convoluted story about uh, a cave and spies and so on and so forth. And um, I think uh, part of being a writer is that you, you, it's almost like a musician hearing a sound or a note. You hear the potential story and and um, when it piques your curiosity, you you follow that lead. I mean, you you investigate further and you find out more and more about it, um, and to develop the story. And I found out very quickly about the grand jury testimony that was available at the library. So I went to the library and got the grand jury testimony, read that, and of course knew knew that Margaret Bean was still 
in town, and uh, I sent her a letter, and she wrote back uh, very kindly uh, and, uh, and invited me to come see her. And, and I spent uh, interview, interviewed her several times, uh, quite extensively. I mean, we started at one in the afternoon and finished at five thirty, and um, and she um, she was a wonderful woman. I mean, she was a very kind, very sweet woman, and um, uh, and this caused problems for me later on, but. Uh, what she was able to do was she was able to give me the real human side of this thing. I mean, it's one thing to, to look at documentation. It's another thing to, to hear the human, human side of, uh, of the story. And that's really what she gave me. Um, and I, it, I say it, was a, it developed into a problem because later on I became very conflicted uh, about when I started doing my research and I, I started to realize that uh, um, my research was taking me in a direction that was... Um, not in agreement with what her understanding of, of the crime was. So that set up a conflict to me because I was, on a personal level, I really admired Margaret Bean, and I didn't want to do anything to upset her or anger her. But on the other hand, the factual documentation or the research I was doing led me in a different direction. So I was conflicted um, for a long time about that. Okay, so that was the first clip with Jack Cooey and uh, some really interesting things there. One thing that I wanted to mention that he meant he mentions Margaret Bean, who is Mark Bean's mom. Mark Bean is, of course, of the Dean Murder Research Group. We we he's been on the podcast on on this coverage. He was uh, he's prevalent in I think episodes three and four, and so his mom actually transcribed the grand jury hearing from Pittman shorthand, which we we've talked about on this, which is basically <laughs> scribbles. And uh, it's not actually scribbles. It's a language that people can translate. And um, Margaret Bean, Mark's mom, uh, did that, transcribed these. So uh, so that was who he was talking about. I think what also what he talks about is that his opinions started differing from Margaret Bean. And we kind of get into that later in the conversation, but I think that's pretty interesting. Exactly. We do get into that a little later in the conversation when he starts comparing the grand jury transcript that she uh, took from the Pittman shorthand with the Department of Justice uh, accounts, um, witness statements and accounts. So we saw some contradictions there, uh, which is interesting. And Mark Bean, the Bean family, we've we've mentioned on the on the show uh, before that they're really deep in the Jaffrey history as well. They had Bean and Simons, which was a, a lumber company back then. So back, then. back in 1918, so they they had this big company in town right and they were located uh right on the uh the railroad track so mm -hmm. you know it was this commerce that was in the small town in the middle of uh, new england pretty much you know kind of smack dab in the middle of new england small town yep and uh and bean and simons had the uh the lumber company and now if you go up there you'll see dd bean and son that's the match um matchmaking company not not the matchsticks uh, matchsticks yeah, yeah not match.com not match.com right. um and Mark Bean is a member of the Dean Murder Research Group, a super generous guy. If you want to check out some of his papers, they're on the uh, deanmurder.org. If you go to the uh, the section where it's um, Dean Murder Resources, the Dean Murder Project, uh, he's got um, a paper on there. Cool. And it's uh, Mark, Mark Bean's paper uh, just describing his the lineage, I guess, and some you know he breaks down some of the characters that are involved in the case. Okay, great. And by the way, that copy that he showed of Margaret Bean's yes. transcript was the same one that I saw. Like, 
when I back met in him the nineties at, at the Woodbound Inn. Yeah. <laughs> okay. A couple more pieces of tape on this one. <laughs> okay, and uh, and there is video of uh, this conversation with Jack Cooey on our YouTube page, YouTube.com/slash Crawlspace. So you can check it out there if uh, if you want to immerse yourself a little deeper uh, with this situation. So this next clip right here is Jack. He starts talking about the cave that was found on Mount Monadnock that is uh, pretty interesting. I wanted to go back to uh, three things that you you mentioned. One was the um, the the caves. So you had you uh, mentioned. To one of your coworkers, you said that you wanted to go. You're gonna climb the mountain, and I yep. got this kind of convoluted story about the yep. the cave and the spies on the mountain and so forth. So that's you. That's me by the cave. Yeah. By the cave. Is this the first time that you uh, discovered the cave in that picture? Or I don't. This... I mean, I was with Larry Davis. Um, you may know Larry Davis. He's a he climbs Mount Monadnock every day. Oh, that's a guy who climbs Mount Monadnock every day. Right. Does that's he Larry still Davis. do that? And you told me about that guy. I, be- yeah. I believe he. Uh, I run every. It's a, that's another whole fascinating story because every time I go on the mountain, it doesn't matter what time of day it is or what day, I just go on the mountain and I run into Larry Davis. It's uncanny. <laughs> I mean, I, but um, yeah, he took me up there and he's the one that took this photograph. Okay. He's, a, he's also a photographer, so he took this photograph, and we did an article in the, at the uh, Peterborough Transcript, and we use this as a, the photograph. And the other thing I wanted to come back on is the uh, you spoke to Margaret Bean and you mentioned the grand jury. Um, testimony the grand jury hearing and that's the that's the one down there that she oh uh, yes uh she transcribed from the Pittman shorthand right now this yeah. is pretty beat up because it's it's been you know this is from 1993 but yeah and of course I got all my notes and everything and you also said that you're a writer you were a writer before you um started in on the deed yeah uh, okay. and I write short stories and mm-hmm. and, and um uh to circle back to your question um the Dean murder. Uh, I keep writing it. I have another. I have another version coming out in January oh. called "The Death of Doctor Dean." And uh, but I keep writing it because dramatically, you know, I'll do a version and then I'll I'll sit on it for six months a year and I go back. I look at it and say, I could do better with this. There's more. There's more dramatic potential here I could get. And and so I rewrite it again and I try to. Uh, it's like distilling whiskey almost. I mean, you have to kind of filter it and filter it and filter it and filter it. And I don't know how many times you have to do it. I may not be done yet. I hope mm-hmm. I am, but I may not be. But you have to keep working it to to get the potential uh, out of the story. Was there something in the grand jury testimony or something in the FBI files that you looked at and said, there's, there's, a, there's a story here? I don't think I... I'm not sure what, what I was trying to do with Two-Legged Fox. Really, it's very short. It's only 48 mm-hmm. pages. I think I was my my initial strategy with with the with the Dean murder story was that I thought that I didn't have to change anything, that the story is so good, just the ba- the, the unvarnished facts of the story are so dramatic and so good mm-hmm. that I really didn't need to to uh, to uh, customize it in any sort of way. So um, I think it's uh, I think it's probably just a, a, a Kind of a general overview of the, of the of the crime, really. I don't I don't know that I really at that point I don't know that I had uh, as focused a, an interpretation as I developed later on. Okay. So I think it's more of a, a general kind of a. Okay. And where does the title Two Legged Foxes" come from? It, that comes from um, when Mrs. Morrison visited Dean Farm on the thirteenth of August. She and Dr. Dean were walking up the farm road between the bungalow and the big house. And um, she knew that he had this flock of turkeys. So she suggested to him that uh, 
uh, he might be willing to donate a turkey to this raffle that they wanted to have for the rummage sale they wanted to have for the to make money for the Peterborough Hospital. And um, he said, well, I'd love to donate a turkey, but I'm afraid I don't have that many or, or something like that. She said, really? Well, why is that? And he said, well, I've got a fox. And she said, oh, you mean a f- uh, I think she said, oh, your fox is taking your turkey? He said, well, yeah, but I think this is a two-legged fox. Right. And the idea that Dean is, is trying to uh, kind of obliquely communicate there is that there's somebody <laughs> in the woods, I guess, that is, that's coming to, onto his place at night and, and and mm-hmm. taking his turkeys and then I guess going out and cooking the turkey somehow and eating the turkeys. And, but anyway, there's somebody in the woods. Okay, so that was the second clip. The cave that he's speaking about on Mount Monadnock has been there since 1902. It's Pompeii Cave. I think it was originally called like Megalithia Cave. Um, and the story behind it is that it was right around 1902, two, two kids needed, they, they decided to build a place to hang out on Mount Monadnock. And they hauled these metal sheets up there. They, they actually did the, um, the, the bag of concrete. They mixed the concrete and put it around the walls um, so that they'd have this place to, uh, to, to chill out when they were on Mount Monadnock. So that's been there since 1902. The exact location of it, I think they try to keep that uh, kind of under wraps, but it's sort of uh, it's sort of pseudo famous in mountain climbing uh, in the mountain climbing climbing network. Right. You know, if you get to um, Pompeii Cave, you know, you take a picture of it, but you you just don't really reveal so much of the exact location of it. Have you been to it? I've climbed Mount Monadnock several times, and I've never been there. Interesting. You so you don't know where it is? It's definitely not on the trails that uh, I typically climb. Right. I think it's on one of the more roundabout trails. Okay, yeah, everyone, everyone's hiking Mount Monadnock. Maybe that's something uh, we'll have to do since I love hiking now. Yeah, since you're you're a seasoned hiker now, you're gonna do <laughs> you're gonna do Monadnock, and you're gonna be like, really? This, <laughs> this is a mountain. This is a fun hill. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Number one climbed mountain in the world. Wow. Okay. Well, maybe we'll uh, we'll find that cave uh, sometime this spring or summer. And here is the next clip. After you've written uh, three books and you're writing an, a new book on it. Um, what's your feeling on uh, Georgina Hodgkins' book, um, *Prime Suspect*? Um, I thought it was self-serving. Uh-huh. I, I think that she uh, she wanted to protect her her brother-in-law. I mean, I think she wanted to protect Rich, and um, I think that's that's that was her point of view, and that was her purpose in writing the book. Okay, and are your books categorized as fiction or nonfiction? They're fiction. They're fiction. Yes. And why would they be categorized as fiction? Well, again, getting back to this idea of, of, of the dramatic potential of uh-huh. the story, I, I didn't want to lim- limit myself necessarily to, to the historical facts. Uh, because what you have to do is, is, is that if there's a secret meeting, for example, you have to extrapolate that into what did that mean, right? So that's where you have to have the f- fictional license, if you will, to do that. You can't say, as a historian, you've got to stick to the facts, right? Mm-hmm. But as a, as, a, as a fiction writer, you can, you can take a fact and then amplify the fact, which is what you want to do, to get the greatest dramatic impact mm-hmm. out of it. Okay. Right? You just mentioned a secret meeting. Yes. What's the, uh, what's the root of that? In January of 1919, a man by the name of John Bartlett, who was a Republican, took the office of governor in the state of New Hampshire. He was a Mason. He appointed a man by the name of Oscar Young to, as attorney general. Oscar Young was a Mason. In January of 1919, we got a, a Masonic governor and a Masonic attorney general. In December 13th of 1918, Charles Rich and his lawyer, Mr. Ruby, 
went to the Department of Justice and gave an extensive interview. Um, and the agents that were present for that interview were Norman Gifford, who was the assistant superintendent of the Boston office, Robert Valkenberg, and Ferry Weiss, all experienced agents. But he, he, they gave, he gave an extensive interview um, to the Department of Justice with those three agents. After that interview, he asked for a letter of exoneration from the Department of Justice, which they refused to give him. So there are a couple things going on here. First, the Department of Justice may have felt played by Rich because he's asking for this letter of exoneration after that interview. Rich is asking for the letter of Rich exoneration. Rich is asking for the letter, okay? okay. Uh, the, other, the other thing is that Roy Picard, the county attorney, for months now is saying Mrs. Dean did it, Mrs. Dean did it, Mrs. Dean did it, Mrs. Dean did it. Um, he's also saying no to an autopsy. He's also saying no to a grand jury, okay? Um, Roy Picard was saying no to the grand jury. Yes, okay. he was saying no to the grand jury. Um, so I think that what happened was is that they'd had this extensive interview with, with Rich. Um, the, the investigation is going nowhere. I think it, it appears as though um, Picard is stonewalling the investigation by the refusal his his uh, insistence on Mrs. Dean being the suspect and his refusal uh, for a grand jury. So in March 21st of 1919, those three agents, and this is, this is significant because uh, Norman Gifford has got to come from, the, from Boston up here to, to have these interviews. Those three agents go to Bean and Simons and have an extensive interview with Bean and Simons. The same three agents, Gifford, Valkenberg, and, and Weiss. And what's Bean and Simons? Bean and Simons is a lumberyard. It's Dilsey Bean and Merrill Simons. It's a lumber yard that it started out in Ringe and they moved it to Jaffrey to be closer to the railroad. Gotcha. Um, but like I said, these three agents showed up and interviewed uh, Bean and Simons. Now, the other aspect to this is that there was a petition at that time being passed around Jaffrey for the citizens to sign to um, present to uh, the county officials, Roy Picard, to have a grand jury hearing. Okay, uh, And... Bean and Simons did not sign the petition. So a lot of this interview was um, uh, talking about why they didn't sign the petition and, and how come they didn't feel a grand jury was a good idea. I think there's something happened in that interview process that upset. Like an intimidation thing? Well, intimidation maybe, or accusation, or intimidation, whatever it is. Um, I think they roughed up Bean and Simons enough. So they made them angry. I, there's a story about uh, Dilsey Bean that Margaret told me about. Um, he, he was in a lumbering, uh, out in the woods lumbering uh, one time, and a child was born. And the Catholic Church at that time wanted the children to be baptized within the first two weeks of their birth. And uh, because Bean was out in the woods, he couldn't get to the church in those two-week period to have this baptism for the child. And when he did get to the church, the priest criticized him for not getting there sooner, and Bean just left the church. So I, like permanently left yeah, the church? Yeah, he just left the church. He okay. originally was Catholic, and I, I'm not sure what his denomination was after that, but he left the church over this, this uh, criticism of the, of, the, uh, of the priest. So I think that Bean was the kind of guy that you didn't mess with him. I, right. mean, I think if you did, he, you, know, you, you just didn't mess with him. And, uh, so I think if these federal guys went in and kind of um, played hardball with him a little bit, he probably pushed back. Okay, so a little bit more on the Bean family there. Uh, I find I find the story about uh, Delcy Bean, who is Mark's grandfather now, right? That would be Mark's grandfather, I believe, yeah. Okay, yep. so leaving the Catholic Church. 
basically telling the Catholic Church, like, F you. I'm sorry I was <laughs> yeah. out in the woods for over two weeks cutting down trees to make, you know, the company better. Uh, sorry I couldn't make it back for your precious baptism. Right. So, yeah, left the church. Just kind of shows where his priorities are. Right. Family. Right. Uh, family and not necessarily. Family, uh, community. Yes. Like, you know, wanting to uh, deal with the church or uh, people telling you what to do and that kind of thing. We also get into the the Masons there, right? Yes. Which is um, one of, uh, I don't know if he's backed off a little bit from it, but uh, Jack's Jack's big on the Mason angle when it comes to, uh, when it comes to the case. Uh, he talks about the secret meeting. He talks about the fact that the uh, county solicitor, who is sort of the um, Roy Picard, who is the county solicitor, which is basically like a, a legal practitioner that operates in jurisdictions of, of communities. He didn't want the the grand jury to happen he didn't want the grand jury to happen he was a mason oscar young the attorney general um who who led the grand jury hearing was also yeah who we heard from in episode one we have an actor read oscar young's uh opening statement from the grand jury hearing now i believe our actor is also a mason which is which is all part of the whole uh conspiracy <laughs> i don't think so no he's is he <laughs> i have no idea honestly no. i don't know maybe <laughs> probably not um, but I do have another friend who's a Mason, but we can get into that later. We, we do get more into the uh, the Masons, um, which is interesting. And, and, you know, you hear it and it's like, oh, it's a secret society. It sounds so fucking secretive. And what are they up to? And more than likely, not a lot of real, like, crazy stuff. But there have been stories, of course, this one being one. I think Jack does a really good job of, and we'll hear it. Uh, the whole Mason thing is is sprinkled throughout everything that Jack does. And he doesn't necessarily promote that image of the Masons as a group being a, an extremely evil group. He, he promotes the theory that they were uh, a fraternal society that looked out for its members. Okay. And let's hear uh, what Jack has to say. This is from uh, March 22nd, 1919, Department of Justice. Continuing investigation last reported on the 21st, agent accompanied by Agent Weiss called on Mrs. Elizabeth Bryant, East Jaffrey, New Hampshire. Agents at this point received confidential information that a secret conference was to be held at, at Winchester, Mass. at some hotel by the following persons. County Solicitor Picard, Cheshire County, New Hampshire. Sheriff Lord, Keene, New Hampshire. Dilsey Bean, Mr. White of East Jaffrey, New Hampshire, Merrill G. Simons, and Mr. Webster. Agents motored to Winchester Mast without a moment's delay in an automobile loaned by the selectmen of East Jaffrey, New Hampshire. Agents, after, after taking the proprietor of the new Winchester Hotel into their confidence, secured a room adjoining one which the proprietor agreed to rent to the subjects if they should come to this hotel. And this is from the, what are you reading from? Department of Justice reports. From March 1919. Yep, March okay. 22nd, 1919. So that's describing a, a meeting in a Winchenden hotel. Correct. Okay. And what was the what was the uh, basis of this meeting? This is the meeting that came as a result of them being interviewed by the federal guys. Oh, okay. 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 So this is the day after. Okay. All right. Now, the Mrs. Bryan, the Mrs. Bryan. I'm not sure how Mrs. Bryan got this information because of such a big deal about this grand jury. Uh, both Simons and Bean had to answer for this their lack of signatures on the petition and 
And the perception in town was is that they were they were trying to protect somebody because they didn't sign the petition. All right. Yep. So they they were vulnerable in a sense to that criticism. Yep. And I think that the uh, uh, the purpose of the meeting was that they they told Picard have the grand jury but make sure nothing happens. Now they could say that because they know the attorney general who's going to run the grand jury is a Mason, and they know the governor's a Mason. Interestingly, very shortly after this meeting. Picard all of a sudden changed his mind and he announced a grand jury at the Keene Courthouse on April 11th of, of 1919. Like a month later. Yeah, yeah, a month later. But, but it, he, changes, he changed his attitude about the grand jury completely after this meeting. Okay, so some interesting facts here about uh, this interrogation at Bean and Simon's and then this quote-unquote secret meeting that happens at the Winchenden Hotel, and then the grand jury is announced uh, to be held a month later. Yeah, maybe we're maybe we're calling the secret meeting a little. Uh, maybe that's being um, too nefarious. Yeah, that's why I put it in, in air quotes. <laughs> yeah, it, um, it, it it was a meeting of high level. Uh, prominent citizens uh in in jaffrey who met at the winchenden hotel the day after the department of justice had talked with them Mm -hmm. um and then that's when roy picard came forward and said okay we're going to have the uh the grand jury um testimony now uh testimonies i guess on it if if it's all about how you present that right it seems really weird when you start saying these are Masons and it's a secret meeting, but look at the circumstances as well. These are prominent citizens in the town. They want to protect their community. Uh, I, I don't see anything that strange about a group of people looking to protect the community having a meeting after being interviewed by the Department of Justice about this murder right. and what's the best course of action. Right. I I don't see anything strange about that either. But what I do find strange is that Picard did not want to have the grand jury in the first place and then changed his mind because of this meeting where, and I'm kind of taking a little bit of liberties saying that, but it does sound like that's probably what happened. It is, it is strange, right? Why someone of the, of a legal stature wouldn't want to have a grand jury based on the, uh, based on this murder. The brutality exactly. of this murder happening in this tiny town. Right. Maybe it was a case where he wanted to sweep it under the rug and, and hope that it went away. Um, but that doesn't really kind of mesh with him being in that position in the first place. You don't get to that position sweeping things under the carpet. So um, I would say the meeting... Uh, by itself isn't so strange, but the circumstances of him changing his mind after that meeting and why he was thinking that way in the first place are very peculiar. Yeah. I could see him not wanting to have the grand jury because he felt there might not be enough evidence for like to charge someone or something like that. He's obviously got a legal mind like that. However, that's one of the reasons you have a grand jury is to see what you have for evidence in order to charge someone for the murder. And, the results of the grand jury, now this could be me putting on my conspirator's hat, the results of the grand jury said that person or persons unknown. So the, the those responsible for Dean's death at the end of the grand jury hearing was person or persons unknown. So they did not determine that there was enough information to um, put somebody to go forward with a trial. They said it was it was person or persons unknown. So maybe that meeting was saying, listen, let's appease 
let's move forward with the whole judicial pr- process and we'll we'll make sure that there's no findings at the end. Yeah. Okay, here's the next clip. I think we get more into the Masons. How how are the Masons connected to the um to the actual murder? This is a man by the name of Herbert Sautel who was a banker, who was a good friend of Charles Mitch's. He lived he worked in Boston, but he had a place up in the Jaffrey area on one of the lakes and he used to come up every summer. This is this is Herbert Herbert Sautel. The whole thing in Cheshire County is this. Rich is a, pol- is a political power there, and he domineers Picard and Young, and that is the reason the case has fallen flat. Now, he talks about Russell Henchman. Russell Henchman has got to thank Rich for every job that he ever had, and I have it from good authorities that Rich made him postmaster in East Jaffrey. Now, Russell Henchman was the superintendent of Waterworks. He was a postmaster. I think he was a selectman for a year. He got all those jobs through the help of Charles Rich. Susan Henchman. Is, a, is the assistant cashier of the Monadnock National Bank, and it is well known that Rich and she are very intimate. You know what I mean. You know what I mean. Get it? Okay? Rich is one bad fault. He is very sweet with a fair sex and will go out of his way when he sees a nice face. Okay? Now, that little blurb there about Rich opens up a whole other vista to this thing because the only other material about Rich you're going to find is official bio- I mean, he was a you know, uh, narrator, uh, he was a moderator of the town meeting, he was, you know, blah, 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 blah. This gives a uh, flesh and blood glimpse into what Rich was like as a man, all mm-hmm. right? And so that opens up, as I say, a whole new vista of this thing because um, you know he has a relationship with Susan Henchman, you know he's got a relationship with, his, with her brother, that he's either currying favor with Susan uh, by helping out his brother, who's a plumber by trade, um, and you've got, you've got episodes with henchmen where, for example, on, on Thursday following the, the murder, the, the, they find the body on Wednesday, on Thursday following the murder, henchman inexplicably goes up to Dean Farm and is, climbing, is cleaning up in the barn in the big house. Have you heard that story? Henchman is the one who ends up pretty much clearing all of potential evidence and, and uh, blood stains. He's the one that went up to the barn right. and, and cleaned it all up. Yeah, he goes up on Thursday to clean up in the barn in the big house. The front page uh, article is Brutal Murder in East Jaffrey. William K. Dean's body found in Rainwater Cistern had been beaten about the head, bound and tied in weighted sack. No cause for murder known. Now, uh, his legs were bound. This is a part of the article. His legs were bound to the knees. In the barn nearby, there were some blood stains, and there were others on the piazza of the big house. Okay. Okay, you got it? Yep. So somebody read the article and said, I gotta go clean this up. Yeah, right, exactly. That was published from the. Uh, that's the Peterborough transcript, nineteen eighteen. On Thursday. On Thursday. And and that's when Hutchman went up to the barn. And third. Now the other f- funny story about that is that that as I say, uh, Hutchman's uh, original occupation was a plumber, and so the federal guy said, uh, "Hey, what's the deal with cleaning up in the barn in the bakehouse?" Yeah. And he said, "Well, I've turned off the water so the pipes wouldn't freeze." And the federal agent said, "In August." Yeah. Right. So he had no reason, he had no reason to be up yeah. there. Right. Given that that Sautel glimpse into Charles Rich being uh, vulnerable to a pretty face, yep. I think that's a that's a, a reasonable expansion on the story that is legitimate to take 
it, it would give a more normal kind of motive, right? If it's like a like a tr- love triangle, right. not this seems huge yeah. German spy conspiracy. Right. Seems more relatable. Very much like on a more human relatable, level. Yeah. Yes, yeah. very much more of a human mystery if you look at it that way. Okay, so really interesting stuff there about Susan Henchman and her brother. Um, who, what was his first name? Russell. Russell. He was up there cleaning the barn and the big house. Yeah. Uh, so what, what Jack does, because he's writing these stories of fiction, is he does take the actual accounts from the Department of Justice and the transcripts. And I liked when he read that part about um, uh, Sautel saying that henchman, Russell henchman, pretty much owes every job that he's received uh, to Charles Rich. So he was, in a sense, indebted to Charles Rich. Um, and it's also stated in what he read from the Department of Justice that um, the accounts of Rich being enamored by a pretty face and um, basically basically saying, without saying, that he was having an affair with Susan Henchman by saying, um, you know what I mean, right. by saying that they had, a, they had an intimate relationship or whatever, and you know what I mean. Right. Um, there was there was a there was a connection there now so, as yeah so so the connection that jack has made is that rich and susan henchman are having an affair at the bank and or i don't know where but they're having they work at the bank together and they're having an affair and her brother is uh ironically charles rich's henchman <laughs> Right, right. He's he's living up to his namesake uh, for Charles Rich. Uh, the the creative license that Jack takes is that Dean was also um, enamored with uh, with Susan Henchman. Um, so you're talking about like two late fifties, early sixty year old men being enamored with uh, a woman. Um, Reminds so, me of Walter Matthau and Jack Lemmon. It's exactly like uh, grumpy old men. Grumpy old men, but with a murderous ending. Right. Um, a, a brutal ending. That part is a little far-fetched for me that they're both uh, having an affair with this one woman. Um, you know, I, I don't, and obviously he doesn't know. We don't know what's true. Who knows? But but what is true is this uh, henchman type of role that Russell Henchman has towards Rich. He's sort of his go-to guy for certain things. And isn't it crazy that so the facts are without getting into any creative license. The facts are that that newspaper, the Peterborough Transcript, wrote that article. Crazy that they put so much detail in it, saying there were bloodstains on various locations. And the fact is, Russell Henchman went there and cleaned up, what was it, the day after? Yeah. That article was published. Or or the day of. The The day day of. That article was published. He goes and cleans up everything. And given, I mean, that really looks like someone read that paper and said to him, you got to get up there and clean all this. Um, what we don't talk about is the fact that the day after um, the murder, there was one of the worst thunder showers ever in the area, and a lot of people said that pretty much wiped out any other or any evidence of um, of blood or or any distress on the lawn of you know people walking back and forth or or any sign of a struggle. So. This is this is after that rainstorm. This is when the the paper publishes that article, and then henchman goes up 
and under the guise, I guess, of going to make sure that the pipes weren't going to freeze. Right, which is a ridiculous thing to say because it's August and it was very hot, we know, uh, the day that Dean was murdered. Um, so that is not something that plumbers do in August unless in he New was England. Unless he was a really diligent plumber and, and was like, you know what, I'm going up there to make sure if no one's going to be around in the winter, then those pipes are not going to freeze on my watch. And I'm going to clean up everything. I could, even if he just said the pipes, you know, I got, well, might as well shut the water off, you know, and, and just not mention the part about them freezing. That would make, be a lot less suspicious for Christ's sake. You know what? Even if he said, I just wanted to come up here and take a look around and clean up someone. All all you could say at that point is that's a really bad decision, Russell. (laughs) Right. But he has to say this thing about the pipes, and that makes it look even makes it look like he was just stammering, right? When they asked him, like, mm-hmm. "What are you doing?" Uh, I was clean. Uh, it has the to water be a lie. Off. I yeah. mean, it is a lie because it's not going to freeze. The pipes aren't freezing in August, so but or or uh, September or October. <laughs> they're probably not freezing. They're right. probably not freezing until like January. Yeah. Um, but, you know, what is interesting is the series of events that occurred to even put him there in the first place and the fact that he did clean up uh, after that newspaper article was right. published. So it is very suspicious. Um, one question that I have that I don't think we have an answer to right now is, was Russell Henchman a Mason? That's a great question. All right, here's the next clip. What's your feeling on the German um, element that was in Jaffrey at the time and before the murder? Well, the first point I want to make in response to that is that um, I think we have to be aware of jurisdiction here. And and what I mean by that is that um, one of the fascinating questions about this is that the the responsibility for the murder is a state responsibility. The responsibility for the espionage is a federal responsibility, okay? Now, the federal guys came up here uh, under the auspices of the Espionage Act of 1917, which was passed by Congress in June, and the the basic wording of that act was that anybody who's aiding or abetting the enemy is subject to fines, imprisonment, even up to death. Okay, and so they got reports from I think Mary Ware and Ringe and, and Mrs. Morrison and Peterborough about these signal lights, and they came up and they're investigating espionage. All right. So that Morrison so, and Ware were the ones that alerted the yes. federal authorities yeah. to come up. Yeah, in and that's fascinating too, yep. Lance, because when you read the federal reports, one of the first things you realize is that the federal guys showed up here and they're staying at the tavern in Peterborough. About a week later, they're staying at the Morrison house. Yeah. Okay? And she's got a telescope set up in the library and all that, and they're having meals there and they're having meetings there and they're helping her with the gardening and they're shoveling snow and they're taking her down to the train station so she can get the train. I mean, they're, they're staying at her house. The other fascinating part about this is that the federal guys are here, are here investigating espionage, all right? Mm-hmm. Now, their interest in the Dean murder is, is tangential in a sense because um, it's only if, a, if that's an act of espionage that they really get involved with us. In other words, if Dean was killed by German spies, then that's where they get involved. One of the, one of the aspects of the, of the grand jury was uh, that uh, the Department of Justice, Father Hannon, the selectmen of Jaffrey, all petitioned the judge, Judge Kival, to allow a federal attorney in on the grand jury to assist. In case there was a, a grand a jury on the espionage, they wouldn't have to duplicate the work. I see. Right? Adamantly denied that. Okay? Kyvel just adamantly denied that. And so you really get the feeling that Kyvel really wanted to control who was in the room. Okay. Okay? Uh, but yeah, you got these two separate 
these two separate jurisdictions, and you got to understand that. The other question I would raise about this is that if there is a collusion between the Masons of Jaffrey, the county guys, and the state guys, they got to know that the federal guys are watching. The federal guys, even though they couldn't get in the courtroom, they hung out in the waiting room. There's this wonderful stories about uh, what went on in the waiting room that the federal guys observed. Okay? Mm -hmm. um, the overall thing about the, the signal lights is there was never any arrest made. So, I don't know. There I, were definitely lights coming off of the mountains, right? According to Morrison and... All right, here's another story. Okay. Okay. In, in August of 1917, Mrs. Morrison uh, was out on the piazza, they used to call them piazzas, the porch, uh, out on the piazza with a friend after dinner, and she started seeing lights off, I think it was Temple Mountain. Mm -hmm. So she got on the phone and called up Robert Bass, who was the former governor of New Hampshire, the Bass family, which is a famous yeah. family, all right? Um, she call, and, and Robert Bass and Mrs. Morrison, I think, were cousins. But anyway, she called up Robert uh, Bass, and he came over to her house uh, with two or three other men that she didn't know, and they watched these lights, and one guy had a stopwatch, and they were timing the lights, and she took them out up a hill so they could see the lights better and so on and so forth, and that's when they broached the subject of having the government guys come and stay at her house and so forth. And she tells the story in the grand jury that way, and she, of course, makes it sound like she's you know, on the front lines of, of defending America against a German... German espionage, but now you read the, the Department of Justice reports, and they go interview one of the men that was with Bass that night, and it turns out his name is Russell, Benjamin Russell, his name is, and he's an architect, and he lives in Boston, and his version of the story was that, yeah, they did see a light, and it was the northern star Sirius, which is the brightest constellation in the northern sky, rising in the sky, and she claimed it was a signal light, and Bass said, no, it's a constellation. And she, Bass tried to talk her out of it. She would not be dissuaded. She insisted it was a light. Okay. Okay? Now, there are, there are stories that are in the um, grand jury testimony that they describe it as, as like, fireworks. Like, like Fireworks. There were yeah. balloons. There were airplanes. Yeah. There was um, Japanese lanterns. There was colored lights. There was, I mean, it gets bizarre. I mean, um, I don't know, Lan. I, but I say, you know. I say, well, was there ever any arrest made? And there never was any arrest made. So. Right. But, but we know federal agents were in town those days that, and that day around Dean's murder investigating the lights, right? That's correct, yeah. Okay. They were here investigating but them. But they're, again, you got, they're here for the lights. I mean, they're not right. here for the murder. That's interesting, right. yeah. Okay, so another interesting clip from Jack. Uh, this is kind of the first time that we approach the idea that the lights weren't didn't have anything to do with the murder of Mr. Dean. Yeah, the first time that we uh, say that these are two separate incidents, mm -hmm. um, that the federal agents had been there, I think, up to two years before the murder because there had been uh, accounts of lights coming off of Mount Monadnock, Temple Mountain, Pac-Man Adnock, the, um, like the, that, that range up there. Pac-Man Monadnock is a different mountain than Mount Monadnock? Yeah. It's, okay. Yep. Okay, good to know, because I was confused by that. Yeah, there's Pac-Manadnock, Temple Mountain, Mount Manadnock, and it's all in the uh, the Temple, Peterborough, Jaffrey uh, region. Okay. The Manadnock region. Okay. Um, so, pretty interesting stuff. I think he makes some good points about jurisdiction and how these two incidents really should stay separate, um, the lights and the murder. Um because there was never any arrest made. There was never any conclusion, really, about the lights. Um, 
However, with that said, uh, still super suspicious about the whole Kofeld thing. So I, I'm not saying that they're not related, but I think it's really good to look at it like they're not at first, and then you kind of go back to it um, naturally. Or at least I kind of go back to the idea that Kofeld probably had something to do with uh, the murder, and he may have been shining German lights or maybe not, you know, or, or lights for German purposes or whatever. Um, so I don't know. What do you think? Right. So like you said, and like Jack said, there's no there's no one arrested for any espionage um, shining signal lights. But it was uh, known it was later known that holes had been bored into the window casings of the big house. And the suspicion was that they were shining lights to, I believe, Pacman Adnock um, to relay messages to Mount Adnock from the big house. Um, and and. William Dean had amassed a, a lot of information. I don't know. I mean, we know this because of what he told Mrs. Morrison. Morrison and him would talk about the signal lights um, at length. And he said when they kicked, he abruptly kicked Kofelt off his property and said he's too good of an American to have him on his property. I think it's a little, you do have to keep them separate, but then at some point there's, there's, I feel like they just start coming a little bit closer together, the lights and the murder. Jack gets into the pictures that the curler found. Yeah, and that, that, that's later, but. And it is later, but yeah. it, that's one more of that little connect, you know, puzzle <laughs> right. piece that, that brings them a little closer together. It seems far-fetched. All of these things seem far-fetched. Like lights, no, that's just a constellation. But I think it's a little dismissive to say, you know, she's looking at a constellation. This is, this is uh, like, people know what stars look like. I mean, I've never looked at at the sky and and said, oh, I think that's signal lights, or something like that, um, or any kind of weird lights. But also, there is the song called "Twinkle Twinkle Little Star." Like stars do twinkle um, when you look at them, you know. So they do. They do kind of come in and, and go out a little bit. Yeah. Or you could be looking at a comet. You could be looking at a you know a shooting star, or something like that. And it was super dark back then. You know, you have to. There's not a lot of light pollution. Right. Right. Light pollution. You know, we live close to Boston now, and you look up on a, a you know a night sky and you know you don't see the stars like you would have back then it would have been really bright back then the stars right but there are other areas in the in the country at the time that you could see stars that didn't have FBI agents there I'm sorry federal agents there to um assess any german signal activity mm-hmm. I it, it it's easy to say oh no this 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 poor woman didn't realize that she was looking at stars she was looking at you know the brightest Sirius the brightest star in you know in the northern hemisphere but i i i would like to think that she would have known what a a star and a signal light would look like and if it was just her that would be one thing but it wasn't just her it was dr dean and it was several other people too exactly okay and here is the final clip what made the Masons so powerful? What was it about them that, that they could, like, flex their muscle? Well, I think, I think we see this. It, it's kind of interesting because I think we're seeing this today with all the sexual stuff that's going on and all these powerful men are, mm-hmm. you know, being exposed, really, for, for bad behavior. I think that the psychology of it is that, that powerful people want to come together um, to become more powerful, but the license that the Masons took... Uh, was that they were a secret. Uh, 
now my understanding about this, uh, and I may be wrong about this, but my understanding was that the allegiance, you, the Masonic allegiance, which took precedence over every other allegiance. So if you and I are Masons, and you're embezzling money from your work, and I know it, it's a secret. Mm -hmm. Okay, but the social hierarchy was much more structured than it is today. We mm -hmm. didn't have the civil rights movement. You know, we didn't have all these. Um, Civil rights movements. I mean, women and transgender people and, and all that. That it, it was a hierarchy, a very strict structured hierarchy. Where the English Protestants, Charles Rich, Webster, White, all those guys, they're at the top. French Canadians, Irish, you're at the bottom. Mm -hmm. Okay. This is one of the fascinating things about this is that that Albany Pelletier, who's a night watchman at Bean and Simons, who saw Rich's horse at the sawdust shoot at nine o'clock. He knew Rich was lying because Rich said he got kicked right before nine o'clock. Couldn't have been, couldn't have happened if the horses at the sawdust shoot had been the Simons, right? Now, now Albany Pelletier knows that he's a French Canadian Catholic. Yeah. All right. Yeah. He's powerless in this society. Yep. See. Yep. So the story is that uh, Dean was with um, Hodgkins, Georgiana Hodgkins, right? The, at, at that night. Yeah. That night. And they were in town. He yeah. met her in town, and he then met they her would... at the uh, at the uh, drugstore. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah. He, they met at the drugstore. And... Okay, so take us through uh, what she claims and what happened, and what um, you said it was Pelletiers, Pelletier. Albany Pelletier. Yeah, and what his statement is, and how that uh, contradicts. Well, the con the contradiction the contradiction between uh, Rich and Pelletier was is that. Rich claimed that he was kicked by his horse right before nine o'clock. Right. All right. And Dean was supposedly came to Rich's home. Well, that's right. con that's controversial. Okay. Okay. That's controversial. All right. Let's and, get and, into that. Okay. Let's get into that. All right. Okay. So lots of controversy. Um, that that's our final clip, and he brings up a whole thing that we, you know, we don't really have the time to get into in this episode. I mean, th that's kind of just how the conversation with Jack goes. You get into another uh, rabbit hole, if you will. And it's just this huge uh, discussion. So um, the, this Albany Pelletier situation is very, very interesting, right? So he says that he saw Rich's horse at nine o'clock. I was super uh, nervous about this um, this this topic uh, because we're talking about we keep saying that eyewitness accounts aren't typically reliable. You always have to take them with a grain of salt. And not only are we talking about an eyewitness account, we're talking about one from 100 years ago. And how are we putting a timestamp on that? You know, how are we putting a timestamp on him being absolutely positive that he saw what he saw? Um, I'm at, glad you asked. At nine o'clock. So. Um, but I was extremely relieved that he had a job that gives him the best in that time period, gives him the best way to establish. I was here at nine o'clock. He was the night watchman. He made hourly rounds. And there is a record of him going each hour to each um, particular location, each uh, at a checkpoint. And, and he registers that I was here right at this time. And it takes me this long to get there. That was part of his, his nightly routine. And it's, it's logged. So he knew within a few minutes when he um, checked in at 9 o'clock to this one checkpoint, and that's where he saw this horse that had supposedly been at Rich's house giving him a black eye at this point. Right. He sees the horse um, and actually walks past it, and and they're picking up sawdust, and 
when he when the account comes out that Rich had been kicked by his horse, I think um, Hodgkin's account was that it was just around like quarter to nine or right around that time, uh, right around maybe 20 minutes or a half hour before mm. nine o'clock between that time period that's when he must have been kicked because if she went back to the house with dean from the drugstore just around you know nine-ish he was already putting uh hot water bathing his eye trying to alleviate the um the swelling or whatever and that's when rich and dean allegedly had that conversation about um applying alcohol like ingesting alcohol to make it uh feel better that was that was the joke that's in um hodgkin's book uh and that's the account that the whole family has. Uh, so that that doesn't, you know, if he gets, if he's if he's already bathing his eye at around nine o'clock, then that means he got kicked by the horse 10, 15 minutes beforehand. But how is that possible when the horse was seen at Beam and Simons? Thank you very much for listening. Please follow us on Twitter at Crawlspace Pod, and we're also on Instagram and Facebook. Thank you very much. When a person goes missing, their loved ones often find themselves overcome with worry and grief. Bruce Maitland started the 501c3 nonprofit organization Private Investigations for the Missing because he knows this feeling all too well. When Bruce's daughter Brianna disappeared in March 2004, he was surrounded by licensed private investigators dedicated to finding her. Now his mission is to provide dedicated private investigators at no cost to other families of the missing, desperate for answers, but without the financial means. Private Investigations for the Missing needs your help. To read the mission statement, make a donation, and keep up with our blog, visit us at investigationsforthemissing.org and follow us at PI for the Missing on Twitter and Facebook and Investigations for the Missing on Instagram. Because forever is too long to wait.